Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, it's a conversation about advances in the treatment of ovarian cancer with Dr. Peter Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is the John Slade Eli Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences and Vice Chair of Gynecology at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology and associate director for clinical sciences at Yale Cancer Center. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how long you've been in this field and how you got interested in it? Certainly. Uh, Actually, I've been in the field quite a while. I did a uh, first in obstetrics and gynecology uh, training program here at Yale back in the late 1960s. And after serving a couple of years in the military, I went to MD Anderson in 1973 and uh, did a fellowship in gynecologic oncology. Uh, Prior to my leaving, I had an interest in rare ovarian tumors because my mentor, John McLean Morris, was interested in it. And when I got down to MD Anderson, uh, I had been told by Dr. Morris not to learn anything about radiation therapy. We did it better at Yale. He was right about that. I was going down there to learn about surgery, which he really was not comfortable with the idea of training uh, me for that. But he told me under no circumstance should I learn anything about ovarian, uh, about uh, chemotherapy uh-huh. because it had never cured anybody. Right. I got down to MD Anderson. It became the mecca. It was the mecca for gynecologic chemotherapy. We treated a huge number of patients with both the common epithelial cancers as well as the rare germ cell tumors and uh, sex cord stromal tumors. So I got very, very interested in ovarian cancer because this is what my mentors down there were interested in, and it just became a natural part of my career. So specialized training programs in gynecologic oncology, surgery, and gynecologic oncology in general were pretty rare at that time. Yes, actually, um, the first formal training program was approved in 1973, and I was in the first formally approved training program, or the year of the first training program, approved by the American Board of OBGYN. There were 25 programs. There's now only about 40 in the United States. But these programs have to train the uh, fellow in uh, radical cancer surgery, which includes uh, bowel, urinary tract surgery, as well as radical gynecologic cancer surgery, chemotherapy, uh, radiation therapy, and uh, all of the board-trained programs have either a one- or two-year commitment to laboratory research in addition to clinical care. So how long of a program is that? Well, uh, at Yale, it's three years. There are several programs where it's four years because the research years are two years. Uh, We believe one year is sufficient to accomplish the goals. And that's after completing medical school and and residency in obstetrics and gynecology. That's correct. So you're talking about 10 years of post-medical school (laughs) training, more or less. 
Well, it gets quite long. Of course, yeah. nowadays we don't have military commitments as we did when I was going through the program, and uh, we didn't have a separate internship from our residency training program, which I had to go through when I was uh, in my training era. Uh-huh. General surgical yes. internship. That's when you like worked every other night. On the short we on the short weeks, the long weeks, we worked four nights out of seven. Oh, oh that was. Easier, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, things have changed. So yes. <laughs> tell us a little bit about, um, you know, ovarian cancer. How common is it? Uh, you know, what, what are we doing today to screen for ovarian okay. cancer? Okay. Well, ovarian cancer remains fairly stable in terms of its incidence. It actually is the 10th most common cancer that women get in the United States. We see about 22,000 new cases a year. The, uh, the problem with ovarian cancer is it has an extremely high mortality rate. Unlike the other more common gynecologic cancers, like uterine cancer, which has an obvious early warning signal of postmenopausal bleeding, or cervical cancer, which can be detected in a precancerous phase and treated before the cancer ever develops, there's no screening test for ovarian cancer. There's no uh, obvious early warning symptoms. Indeed, at least 70% of ovarian cancers in the United States are not detected until they're advanced. The disease is not only spread outside of the ovary, but it involves the upper abdomen or uh, beyond the abdominal cavity. So like the most common thing that women present with are bloating, distension, abdominal pain, pretty nonspecific symptoms. Yes, and that's the problem because about 10% of Americans have irritable bowel syndrome, and for many people, the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome are virtually the same as those for ovarian cancer. One distinguishing feature is that uh, when one has a pelvic mass, there frequently is pressure on the bladder, so urinary frequency is very common in women with ovarian tumors, both benign and malignant. You don't see that with the irritable bowel syndrome. But the bloating is very, very common with both. Uh, abdominal discomfort, change in bowel habits can occur. And so the symptoms are often put off initially to some uh, dietary uh, indiscretion one may have had, and it's, it delays the diagnosis. And so in terms of screening, uh, is, there, is there any group that's recommended for screening, and what, what would be done then? Well, screening programs have uh, developed all over the United States. We had one of the very first that we started at Yale back in 1990, and that was based on family history. We now know that there is a, a particular group of women who have inherited a mutation in either the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, and these women are at a much higher incidence of ovarian cancer than women who do not have that uh, mutation, have not inherited the mutation. So the National Cancer Institute recommends really screening only in patients who have a high risk based on the mutation in the BRCA genes. For patients with family histories of breast and ovarian cancer, these are the patients that should be screened genetically to be sure they don't have that mutation. But the women who have the mutation in the United States, uh, the best recommendations are to complete fertility and then uh, undergo either a uh, removal of the tubes, fallopian tubes and ovaries, or as a temporalizing measure, removing the fallopian tubes uh, at a younger age uh, and then coming back and removing the ovaries as one approaches menopause. But for just the population as a whole, the available tests 
that have been employed to try to screen for ovarian cancer have had a very high false positive rate, leading to a lot of unnecessary surgery, but not reducing the incidence of stage three or four ovarian cancers. So the best test is just still seeing your uh, gynecologist and getting a pelvic exam? At this moment, that is as good as any, and uh, we do recommend uh, for reproductive age women seeing gynecologists on a routine basis. And uh, uh, ultrasound, either vaginal or abdominal? Yeah, the the ultrasounds and a blood test called CA-125 have been the the two tests that have been uh, most extensively studied. Uh, The ultrasounds always made the most sense to me because they looked directly at the ovaries. But unfortunately, ovarian cysts, very benign ovarian cysts, are very, very common. Even in postmenopausal women, one can find small ovarian cysts that are innocuous. And so with ultrasound, there's a higher incidence of um, false positives because these cystic changes in the ovaries are found leading to surgery. CA-125 obviously circulates around the bloodstream. It's a blood test, uh, but it can be elevated in reproductive age women for a number of benign gynecologic cancers, uh, benign gynecologic uh, uh, indications, uh, and uh, including benign ovarian cysts, pregnancy, uh, inflammation in the fallopian tubes. It is a little bit more accurate in postmenopausal women who don't experience these uh, reproductive age problems. But uh, any inflammation in the abdominal cavity, any reason for collecting fluid in the chest or the abdominal cavity uh, can cause an elevated CA-125. So in our large uh, tests that have been done uh, in the United States and in Europe, it really doesn't seem like the CA-125 in a woman who has an inherited mutation for cancer is going to be valuable, uh, and the ultrasound has not been valuable in terms of early detection of ovarian cancer. And um, on the other side of the genetic testing and screening, uh, my understanding is now that uh, ACOG has recommended that any woman who has ovarian cancer gets tested for a BRCA mutation because it's much more common than indicated by the family history, so to speak. That's exactly right, Uh, especially now with smaller families. We don't always see uh, all these cancers being expressed that we had when the BRCA gene was originally identified. Um, It's very important uh, for the patient, because we now have new therapies that are involved with uh, patients that, that are active in patients with BRCA gene mutations. Very important because of what the implications are for your offspring. Um, so we do recommend BRCA gene mutations. Uh, uh, sorry, we recommend uh, looking uh, at the genomics of the ovarian cancer and studying patients to see whether they may have an inherited susceptibility to uh, ovarian cancer. Uh, regardless of their age. So that's something pretty new in ovarian cancer. What else has changed over the last decade, let's say, in in your experience? Well, I I think very little had changed up until uh, the very recent uh, past. Uh, The introduction of the platinum agents back in 1979 as first-line therapy, initial treatment for ovarian cancer, uh, was really a milestone. Uh, It improved the the median survival of ovarian cancer patients from about 12 months 
when I first started out in this field to 24 months. Uh, the introduction of the taxanes with the platinum agents back in the 1990s improved the survival out to about 36 to 38, median survival, that is, out to 36 to 38 months. And then we've seen nothing of a great excitement until the PARP inhibitors. And two years ago, a drug, a laparib, had become approved in patients who have uh, uh, an uh, abnormality in their uh, cancer, either because they have an inherited mutation or a somatic mutation. And uh, we now have agents, three approved by the FDA, that can be used in women who have something called uh, homologous recombination deficiencies, uh, which include the BRCA gene mutation patients and a number of other patients. About 70% of all ovarian cancers are serous cancers, high grade. And these are the cancers where in about half of them, patients either have an inherited susceptibility to the cancer or have developed changes within the cancer itself that make them susceptible to these PARP inhibitors. And that's been an exciting development. So about a third of women with ovarian cancer may f have the, these drugs be useful, and there are tumors that have something wrong with the DNA repair mechanism, be it from Brock, inheriting BRCA or the tumor itself having uh, developed some kind of um, defect in DNA repair. Correct. And so that's, that's really pretty amazing. So those people get chemotherapy and then they go on to these PARP inhibitor drugs. They do as a maintenance or if they've uh, already had two or three different uh, treatment regimens, they can receive the PARP uh, drugs as the treatment for their cancer. And, and those are pills? Yes. So you just take a pill once a day. They have a lot of side effects, these PARP inhibitors? Uh, they vary a little bit from one to the, the next, but uh, like so many of the new drugs, uh, some nausea, some diarrhea can be associated with them. Uh, in some of them, uh, we see a little bit more bone marrow suppression, particularly platelet, low platelet counts, uh, but it varies a bit from one to the next. Um, but not like chemo. It's a lot uh, easier than chemo. It's a lot easier than chemo. Uh, you take one or two pills once or twice a day, and that is the extent of your treatment. So when it, it's, uh, it's been a great breakthrough, we believe, uh, for those patients where, who are susceptible to the cancer. And, and how long do people stay on these PARP drugs? Uh, in <clears throat> at this moment, we would consider maintenance for at least one year after you complete the chemotherapy, the first-line chemotherapy. But in patients who are taking it for recurrent disease, we simply would continue until the disease manifests itself again. Okay, so n a new, really interesting approach to maintenance therapy of ovarian cancer. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about ovarian cancer with Dr. Peter Schwartz. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who will die from this disease. 
Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to unnecessarily removing multiple cores from the prostate. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Peter Schwartz, and we are discussing ovarian cancer. So we were just talking about maintenance therapy with PARP inhibitors that work for like a big subset of patients with ovarian cancer, about a third who have some kind of DNA repair um, deficiencies. You know, when I was in medical school, which was the time that you first came to Yale, um, the, you know, we used to think of DNA as kind of being static, but it turns out that their DNA is always reproducing and opening and closing. And so you need a lot of machinery in the cell to keep the DNA intact. There are a lot of spelling errors and breakage of DNA. So these drugs take advantage of that. And um, by putting people on this maintenance approach with the pills, how, how long are patients surviving now? Uh, in the prospect of randomized trials, the um, improvement has gone from five months with a placebo out to 19 months with uh, one of the uh, agents. So that's dramatic. Now, that's in patients who have had the mutation, uh, an inherited mutation. That's how long it takes for the tumor to progress, but not, not survival. Oh, Like, how long do you think that patients are surviving now if they get this kind of maintenance approach? With the maintenance, well, we still don't have the final report results back on that. We have the progression-free survivals, uh-huh. but the overall survivals are longer, much longer, probably at least a year longer, but we don't really have uh, long-term data so, on that. So routinely you're seeing people who are out four or five years with ovarian cancer, even though it presents with this kind of this spread yeah. in the beginning. Ovarian cancer has become, for many patients, a chronic disease like kidney disease or like, uh, sorry, like diabetes or cardiac disease. Patients are on medications. The medications have to be uh, changed at times. Their doses have to be altered. Sometimes there's surgery involved. But basically, our patients live many years longer now, even with advanced stage disease at the initial presentation, than they ever had in the past. And we have many patients between 5 and 10 years out who are alive and well but most of them are on some form of treatment. Typically, it's been standard chemotherapy. Today, if we can get them on a PARP inhibitor, we get them on as soon as possible. So if somebody is diagnosed with ovarian cancer, as you said, most of the time it's kind of spread, but the first approach still is surgery. The management of ovarian cancer is changing, okay? Back in 1979, I treated our first patient with uh, cisplatinum. And cyclophosphamide, no doubt. uh, No. No. I was more modern than that. Oh, okay. It was cisplatinum and adriamycin. Oh, adriamycin. Another another oldie but goodie. Right, right. Uh, We had a patient who was referred to me who uh, 
had been on a, med- on a medical service in one of our community hospitals for about three weeks, and finally a radiologist yelled at the gynecologist to transfer her to Yale. She came to us. She had uh, not only massive disease in her abdomen and massive distension due to fluid, but she had bilateral uh, pleural effusion. She had fluid on both sides of the chest. I put her on the OR schedule, uh, and the morning of her surgery, by 4 a.m., she woke up in acute pulmonary distress. I came in, and I drained the fluid off of both her chest walls. I waited two days, rescheduled her. She did the same thing at 4 a.m. I then came in, drained the fluid off. I waited over a weekend, put her on the schedule, and at 4 a.m., I had to come in. And this time, I put chest tubes in both of her uh, chest walls to drain the fluid, and she was given cisplatinum. She was the first patient to be treated at Yale New Haven. Cisplatinum had become available four days before, and it had been, uh, pre- data had been presented at Mount Sinai suggesting it was very active as re- for recurrent disease. I gave her adriamycin and cisplatinum. I, I pulled her chest tubes. She continued to leak fluid from a left chest wall, so I put a urostomy bag on her chest wall. I sent her home and told her to come back four weeks later. I never expected to see her again. That patient came back four weeks later. Her abdomen had shrunk. There was no fluid in her chest. We treated her for five cycles of chemotherapy before a mass developed. I operated on that lady. She had massive adhesions. The mass was uh, a benign change in the pelvis, infarcted appendix epiploica, and she lived 12 years with no further therapy. So from that time on, once or twice a year, patients who were medically unstable or had such massive disease I knew I could not get out enough cancer to make a difference surgically, they were given upfront uh, chemotherapy and then followed by surgery and typically some additional treatment with chemotherapy. That wasn't exactly the normal paradigm. That was a contradiction. Uh, The normal paradigm was what you suggested, aggressive surgery as the initial step in the treatment of the patients followed by chemotherapy. Uh, We changed that paradigm at Yale for very sick patients with very advanced disease. We presented that in 1989 and published it the year later. it was not met with uh, great success amongst the gynecologic oncology community. Several years, two, two years later, we published another paper with uh, more updated results. And what we found, which was very important, was that patients who had advanced stage disease who we could not perform what we call optimum surgical cytoreduction, in other words, removing the overwhelming majority of the, of the cancer so that only tiny little implants were left behind. We found that in those patients where we gave the chemotherapy to first and then operated, they had survival equivalent to doing upfront surgery but still leaving little pieces of the cancer behind. We found their survival was no different doing it upfront with the chemo rather than doing the surgery. But in terms of the uh, trauma to the patient, the need to resect bowel, spleen, parts of the liver, it was dramatically less if we gave the chemotherapy up front. And we really thought that what we had was an alternative to the management of patients with very advanced disease who could not be optimally surgically approached. So so we're talking about 35 years ago. Right. The 
primary dogma was to operate and remove all the tumor as much as possible, even if it meant taking out parts of the bowel and the other organs you mentioned. Right. But you were describing for people who really had would require very extensive surgery. You'd give them some chemo first and seem to have the same survival exactly. and the same benefit. So that wasn't, uh, it took a while for people to, to adopt that approach. Yeah, yeah. The dogma was definitely surgery first. And actually, it's why I was brought to Yale, was to do just this kind of surgery. And indeed, in the beginning, the first decade that we used this approach, we only used it on one or two patients a year whereas we were seeing 50 to 70 new advanced ovarian cancers per year. So it wasn't a common thing at that time. However, subsequent to that, um, we were challenged because of a lack of uh, really long-term uh, follow-up. We provided that long-term follow-up, and I got involved with uh, debates at our major national and international uh, meetings with the leaders in our field. I must say, with one exception, I won every debate. Uh, and uh, I had proposed actually in 1993 that we do a prospective randomized trial for patients with advanced disease that based on CT scanning suggested that we could not remove virtually all the cancer. That was not looked upon favorably by any of our colleagues. But finally, uh, the Europeans picked up this approach. And there are two prospective randomized trials uh, from Europe uh, which show that there is absolutely uh, no difference in survival. Well, I'll change that. that Patients who have advanced stage ovarian cancer, stage 3C and 4, who, are, uh, who undergo uh, surgical cytoreduction, if the initial disease volume in the metastasis, the, the largest mass outside of the pelvic mass, is less than 4.5 centimeters, those patients do well, much better with surgery than, uh, than they do with giving the chemotherapy up front, the neoadjuvant approach. But once the disease in the upper abdomen is more than four and a half centimeters with stage 3C disease, or the patient has stage 4 disease, the patients in both prospective randomized trials have done better with the neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach than they have with the conventional upfront surgery followed by chemotherapy. So basically for ovarian cancer, which spreads around the abdomen, if you do a CAT scan, it looks like they've got a fair amount of disease there. Four and a half centimeters isn't that big. So more than a little bit of disease that you can see there, then you normally would start with chemo today. Uh, we would, I have to hedge a bit on that answer. Yeah. Okay, so today, the latest approach seems to be when you're not certain as to whether or not you can take out the, the mass or masses that have spread from the ovary, laparoscopy is being employed. Uh, Certainly, if one has a four and a half centimeter or even a seven or eight centimeter mass involving the omentum, but no disease in the diaphragm or liver or spleen, this is a patient that you should be operating on, I in my see. opinion. But if you have disease coating the, the diaphragms involving the splenic uh, capsule, uh, these patients usually have such extensive disease, you know you're going to leave something behind. The data suggests that optimum surgical cytoreduction reduction is removing everything today, not leaving little parts behind as we did in the, in the past. So we, our goal is to remove all of the cancer with whatever the surgery is, whether it's the upfront primary surgical cytoreduction reduction or following uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So you said 
back in the old days, you know, when you started doing this, it was a couple cases a year. What percent today would you guess get neoadjuvant chemotherapy as opposed to surgery first? Well, this is interesting because there's been some uh, surveys now of academic medical centers, which are the centers that usually lead the field in terms of determining management. And many centers, up to 50% of their advanced stage ovarian cancers, are now initially treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That must be pretty rewarding for you to feel like that approach has been really validated uh, and being used appropriately for the people who have the most advanced disease. It certainly is, uh, but uh, what we'd like to see is really an improvement in the overall cure rate, and that's the challenge for future generations of uh, oncologists. And and one other new drug that's come around that besides these PARP inhibitors is an antibody that blocks blood vessel growth, um, which is called bevacizumab or Avastin. How is that being used in ovarian cancer today? Well, uh, <coughs> That has been a very exciting drug initially. It certainly is effective in uh, recurrent ovarian cancer. It's effective in combination with chemotherapy for recurrent ovarian cancer. Uh, unfortunately, after we really are convinced in medicine that this is a way to treat people, something happens that changes our minds. Uh, there was a recent prospective randomized trial that compared uh, standard chemotherapy, uh, which is carboplatin and taxol, plus bevacizumab, the drug you were talking about, to giving the chemotherapy in what we call a dose-dense fashion. This was a trial done by the GOG, uh, and in patients, there were patients, uh, the major group of patients had bevacizumab plus carbotaxol. The bottom line is there was a group that didn't receive the bevacizumab, had, it, had the dose-dense carbotaxol. They had the same results as patients who received the antiangiogenic. I see. So giving the chemo a little bit more intensively may be equally a step forward. Well, we're getting close to the end. So what advice would you give for the next generation of GYN oncologists? Uh, you have a pretty long perspective on the field, and you know, what, would you t what do you tell your students today? Well, I, I think it's a great field because you, you take care of the patients from the time you first meet them until, well, virtually the rest of their lives. But I think for those entering into gynecologic oncology, minimally invasive surgery is definitely taking over the field. They must become skilled in minimally invasive surgery. They must uh, stay tuned to what is going on in laboratory research because the changes that are coming through now are amazing. And uh, I think they always have to be prepared to challenge the dogma of uh, how we approach management of patients because it's the young people that really will make the difference in the future. Dr. Peter Schwartz is the John Slade Eli Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences and Vice Chair of Gynecology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.